Heavenly Father, your word is a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our hearts. Lord, your word pierces deep into our hearts. It shows us your son, Jesus, and how we're to live for him. Lord, you say in your word that your words are profitable for all of life, for teaching, rebuking, challenging, and encouraging, so that the man of God can be equipped for good works. Lord, help us as your people to come to your word this morning, knowing that you will speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, imagine if I said to you this morning that I'm leaving the church, that this is my last Sunday and this is my last sermon here. Apparently that's happened before in the history of the church about 40, 50 years ago, a pastor signaling his resignation after preaching on a Sunday. But don't worry, Ken, it's not actually the case. The key word here is imagine. So if you imagine this, how would the feeling be in the church? Well, hopefully, it's not joy and celebration. (laughs) Hopefully, it would be emotional, a bit of somberness and sadness. And what would you want to hear as the church if it was my last sermon? You'd probably want to hear about what matters most, how to keep going well as believers and as a church. Well, as we look at Acts 20... That's what we find at the end here. First off, we start with the story of a boy, Eutychus. He's probably between 8 to 14 years old. He's in a stuffy room late on a Sunday night, here being the first mention of a Sunday church gathering. You can imagine the room is dim, the lamps give off an aroma, Paul's two to three hours into his sermon... And this poor boy falls asleep. He's sitting next to a window. Three stories down, he falls down, dies, and is raised to life. Which prepares the way and maybe implicitly prepares our focus by waking us up to pay attention to Paul's heartfelt speech at the end of the chapter. As we've gone through Acts, we've seen that Acts is a book of speeches, and it's fascinating that this is the only speech in Acts directed to Christians. We've seen the beginning of Acts, Peter, he spoke to unbelieving Jews, Paul usually speaks to unbelieving Gentiles, but this particular speech that Luke has recorded here for us, it's directed to believers. It's directed to a group of elders in the Ephesian church. And this passage is usually used in the context of pastors, leaders, elders, and the role of leaders in the church. But today we're going to unpack this passage through the lens of the church, of a believer, and see from Paul's address to these leaders, what does the church look like? What does gospel ministry, faithful gospel ministry look like? What does gospel ministry that lasts over time 
over generations looks like. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, uh, there's no direct unpacking of Jesus here, but I think this passage will give you a picture of what the Bible says a church that follows Jesus looks like, what leaders and elders in the church look like. You see, Paul farewelled the leaders of Ephesus, but he's setting them up here so that gospel ministry continues. He's giving them a picture of gospel ministry that lasts. I've been thinking of over the past few weeks uh, about how a church continues on with a focus, a clear focus on gospel ministry so that when a pastor leaves, when leaders change, when generations change, that same unchanging good news of Jesus continues to be proclaimed. So that churches don't move away from the call of making mature disciples of Jesus when change happens, because change does happen. You know, one day, we joked about it before, but I don't know when, but I'm not going to be here at Hertford Street. One day, we're going to send Tim off, God willing, to the next step of his journey towards long-term cross-cultural mission. We've already said goodbye to Sam Hemming before. One day, Ken Myhill might not be on the leadership anymore. As time goes on, for whatever reason, people will move on and pass on. What can we together as a church uphold, each of us included, so that gospel ministry lasts here? Well, beyond our days. Well, just to get our bearings in this chapter, Paul, he's moving, he keeps moving. Uh, You see in the beginning, he moves from Ephesus, where we left off last week. He goes towards Jerusalem, which we saw Paul mention last week too. And as we follow his travels, you can see a bit there, he does a bit of a mishmash in verses one to six. He moves from Ephesus to Macedonia, Then he moves to Greece, that's Corinth. It's all numbers there, if you really want to have a look. And then because of the Jews trying to harm him, Paul, he wanted to sail back towards from Corinth all the way to Syria, to Jerusalem. But then he changes this because the Jews are trying to harm him. Instead of going by sea, he goes by land with a bunch of his missionary friends and effectively tracing his way back to Macedonia. And then they all, uh, including Luke, note the us and the we language in verse 5 onwards. They met up in Troas, that's number 5 there. And then we get to the first scene in Troas. Paul's teaching at a Sunday service. Eutychus, he falls out the window. A warning to never fall asleep during a sermon. And then verse 13 to 16 continues Paul's travels from Troas to Assos, Paul by land, others by ship. From there, they go together by boat to Mytilene, or all the way from there to Miletus, 50k south of Ephesus. And this brings us to the second scene, which we've got to focus on, Paul farewelling the elders of Ephesus. 
And this morning, we're going to see four things of what gospel ministry that lasts looks like in this scene. And the first ingredient of gospel ministry that lasts, we find starting in verse 17. Have a look. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul begins his farewell speech with firstly appealing to his past ministry, his living, verse 18, his serving, verse 19. And this is the crux of his living, his serving, his ministry in verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the first ingredient of gospel ministry that lasts it's this, teaching God's truth. And we see it here declaring what is profitable. That's not withholding any teaching, not just teaching the easy stuff, but teaching also the hard and unwelcome stuff. Teaching in public. For Paul, whether it be in the synagogue, in their own weekly gatherings, or gatherings with unbelieving crowds, teaching house to house, teaching in homes, in home groups, over dinners, for us over coffees, visits, and in all of these testifying repentance and faith to Jesus to everyone. That means holding out the good news and how we respond and how we want people to respond to the saving work of Jesus. Paul ends his appeal to his past ministry on this same note too. Verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You see, Paul, he can say to these Ephesian elders that his hands are clean, that he's done his bit, that the ball is in their court, the Ephesians, because of his teachings of God's truth, he never held back. He always stepped up and he declared not just parts, but the whole counsel of God, all of God's truths. And even if we look back to the first scene, we can have a giggle like poor Eutychus, but I reckon even there, Luke, the author, He's focused on the teaching of God's truth. You see, they gathered Paul's teaching gospel truths, and even after Eutychus falls and after this miracle of Eutychus coming back to life, guess what happens? Verse 11. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. You see, Paul, he doesn't change the service to become about the miracle that just happened and the healing. He keeps going. 
in the service. He leads communion, and he keeps on teaching. The first ingredient of gospel ministry that lasts is the teaching of God's truth, or how we put it today, the teaching of God's word. That's what we find in Acts 20, and in particular, Paul's farewell to these Ephesian elders, the teaching of God's word, the center of our ministries in public gatherings and private conversations, and teaching all of God's word, not just picking psalm and ignoring others, and teaching that ultimately holds out the good news of Jesus, just like we said before in the service, calling people to repent of sins and trust in Jesus. I've been thinking about uh, some of the many recent developments in the church world, uh, whether it be liberalism, that's moving away from the authority of scripture that many churches and denominations suffer from today, gender and marriage issues such as the Anglican Church in England. Uh, if you haven't heard, they've effectively decided to bless same-sex marriages. Or false teachings like the prosperity gospel, word of faith movements, and an increase of what some would call spontaneous revelation when people say things like, God gave me a vision, God told me. And those things don't have any alignment with Scripture. And the rise of experientialism, or even on the other end, pragmatism in the church. I think in all of these very different developments, somewhere on the line in their thinking, maybe even two or three generations back, at some point, this priority of teaching of God's word was lost. And the teaching of the word of God, while there's a special role for pastors and leaders to teach the word well, to drive the teaching ministry of the church, for gospel ministry to last, to keep going, it's actually the whole church and everyone in it all of you, all of us, embracing, wanting, and sitting under the teaching of the word. You see, we as leaders can only do so much, and we do need to do it. We teach on Sundays. We lead training courses. We offer growth opportunities. We write things for you to soak up and read up, and we present teaching in many other ways. But it's really the church, it's really all of us, believers, itching, wanting to hear the word of God, keen to soak in scripture, taking opportunities yourselves to grow in Christ's likeness, and ensuring that the teaching of God's word continues, that continues between leaders, between pastors, generation to generation, that allows gospel ministry to last. You see, you might be academic, you might not be. You might enjoy studying, you might not. You might be a reader, you might not. But we have a God who chose 
to reveal himself through his word. He chose to reveal his good news of salvation. He chose to reveal his son, Jesus, to us through his word. And however God has made you, you can still love his word. You can still soak in his word. You can grow through his word. You can encounter the God who saved you from death to life in Jesus. Let's remember that these first century believers, they were even less educated than us. Yet they soaked in God's word day by day. And some, many, even died because they were people of the word. Gospel ministry that lasts, it starts with the teaching of God's word. But that's not all, because we find the second ingredient in verse 22. Have a look. Paul says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. We learn in Acts 19 that Paul was convinced that God wanted him to travel to Jerusalem. And while we won't explore this, it's interesting comparing Paul's gaze towards Jerusalem with Jesus and his gaze towards Jerusalem in the Gospels. Paul seems to know here that suffering awaits, and it makes sense if you think about it, because if, if Jews in Gentile cities were already trying to harm Paul. Imagine what Jews in Jerusalem would be like to Paul. It's like driving a Queensland number plate down to Sydney. You're just asking for it to get stolen. <laughs> Paul, he could have easily avoided Jerusalem. He could have gone to Jerusalem and pretended he wasn't a Christian. He could have sidestepped to get out of harm's way. But Paul shows us his example here in verse 24. He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul, he shows the Ephesian elders, and us, his priorities. God's calling on his life first, witnessing to Jesus first, finishing well for the sake of the gospel first. And this leads to our second ingredient to gospel ministry that lasts, putting Jesus first. Letting the cause of Jesus be our goal in life and death. We all hold things as important in life. And what's most important becomes apparent when you have to make a decision in life. And there are things in life that we drop anything for, aren't there? It could be a family member in need. It could be a promotion at work. It could be something to do with your kids. It could be that once-in-a-life opportunity. Well, let me ask you, 
would you drop everything for the cause of Jesus? Does the cause of Jesus make that list of things in life that you'd drop anything for? Would it even top the list? Would you stand firm for the cause of Jesus and continue to put him first, even if it's hard, even when there's opposition, even if it's uncomfortable? It could be in your workplace, something in your job that clashes with putting Jesus first. It could be a financial decision, putting Jesus first, even if it's going to hurt. It could be a relationship saying that you're a Christian, trying to share Jesus with them, even if there's going to be opposition and you know it. It could be a career change, putting Jesus first, even if it means lower pay or more study or no no more opportunities to get promoted. It could be our theological positions as a church, putting Jesus first and saying what we believe, even if our community is going to hate it. It could be anything, really. It could be a choice of how you spend your time in putting Jesus first for the sake of the gospel. It could be one decision. It could be your daily rhythms, your weekly patterns. I think, as we said last week, We're a culture that likes comfort. We like being laid back, especially in Brisbane. And we're a culture of people, a society in the West that hates opposition. And if you think about it, if we just let those things happen naturally in our lives, we're not going to put Jesus first. And what's going to happen to gospel ministry? It's not going to last. So let me challenge you this morning in putting Jesus first. I know that we all hopefully agree to this and uphold this in writing, but let's consider how we put Jesus first in every decision that we make. Well, we're going to keep going. Uh, We get to the second section now of Paul's letter. Now he's reflected on his past ministry, and now he moves to challenge the Ephesian elders. And he starts in verse 28. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Paul, he calls the church leaders here to pay attention, to watch, to be alert, to be on guard and to protect, almost a contrast to what we saw before with Eutychus. And that's the third ingredient here for gospel ministry that lasts, guarding the flock. This point is more geared towards church leaders. But as believers who are part of the church, I think there's a sense that you want to be guarded. You want to welcome being guarded. And you want your leaders to step up 
and to be active in guarding the church. And Paul says there's two things to watch. First is yourselves, leaders watching themselves and other leaders. And note that there's a plurality of leaders. He's not just one guy calling the shots. And the second thing here is all the flock, leaders looking after the church, the church of God that is so special to him that Jesus died for on the cross. God has made these leaders, these elders, these overseers like guardians to care for them. Verse 29 continues. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. Paul he here imagines the church, the believers, the people of God as a group of sheep. They're here in the forests of Turkey, near Ephesus in Miletus. And these sheep, this group, they're like sitting ducks. Wolves in the forest will come, and they come to kill. And these wolves, Paul mentions, are false teachers, people holding out a different gospel, whether it be a moralistic gospel, a prosperity gospel, a liberal gospel, a Jesus plus gospel, or a no Jesus gospel. And this will happen from inside the church too. We find the same thing. People trumpeting false teaching too. The third ingredient to gospel ministry that lasts is guarding the flock. Leaders paying attention to guarding themselves and the flock. Watching out, being alert, and I think the flock wanting to be guarded and willing to be guarded too. Guarding is an unpopular thing. We say things like, oh, just, just ignore it. What's the big deal in the details? It's not that different. It's not harmful. But Paul paints it here in vivid colors. False teachers are like wolves ready to kill. They're leading disciples astray, taking them away from the flock. And we're not talking about shallow teaching, different interpretations on secondary matters. We're talking about false teaching in the sense of a false gospel. And let me be honest with you today. There's a fair amount of false teaching around. Instead of the work of Jesus that saves, whether it be a Jesus plus something or a no Jesus at all something. And I know I use this illustration a lot, but let me say this in the kindest way. There are books in Kurong, celebrity pastors on TV, and they might look 
and sound innocent, but whether they know it or not, and whether they want to say that or not, obviously they're not going to say that. They're like wolves ready to kill. And we need to be on guard, leaders and all of us. Are you on guard? Are you keeping watch? Are you welcoming being kept guard of? Are you willing to make sure that you're not being led astray or even worse, being devoured by wolves? I remember visiting Joyce Bishop years ago, probably the first or second year I was here at Hereford Street. And she pulled out this book and she asked me, I've been reading this book. Tell me what you think. Is this good? Is this bad? And why? I was so encouraged by that conversation that I still remember it today. But thinking back in my ministry, I haven't had that sort of conversation much. I don't know if that conversation much happens much between believers, between folk. I reckon I could count with the fingers of my hand, not including my thumb, the number of times I've had this conversation. I don't know how people would feel to have that conversation. And while I think we as a leadership would confront obvious and clear false teaching, I think we need to reflect whether we're ready as a leadership to confront the subtle but clear false teaching that's now ingrained in the church universe. The third ingredient to gospel ministry that lasts is guarding the flock. Now we come to our final ingredient today, and this is a passing point in what feels like a passing challenge to the Ephesian elders. Verse 33 says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You see, while gospel ministry it centers on the word, proclaiming Jesus. It's not just a transaction of here's the gospel message and see you later. You see, Paul shows us by example that gospel ministry is about serving others. It's not about taking from others, whether it be luxuries like silver or gold or clothing. It's primarily an other person centered thing, serving others. And Paul, he ends with this command, helping the weak, meaning serving those in physical need, showing mercy and love to others, having that fundamental disposition of giving and putting others first, of serving others starting with acts of love, care, kindness, and service, 
being the hands and feet of Jesus, showing him in all that we do that we might point people to his good news. Our final ingredient of gospel ministry that lasts is serving others, being ambassadors of God's love by serving those in need in practical ways, both in our church and in our wider community. Let me ask you this morning, how are you practically serving others? How are we as a church practically serving our community? I'm going to go on a limp and say that for most of us, the spirit is strong, but the flesh is weak. We all agree with this, but whether it's time, priorities, lack of opportunity, or lack of taking initiative, I think we don't do this as well as we can. And I know for me that it's so easy to get caught up with the teaching the word stuff that I forget the wider gospel call to love and serve others practically. Let's remember this morning that the gospel message has hands and feet. And it's our lives. It's the tangible, practical love for others as we live for Jesus in our community as we reflect God's love in Jesus to the world around us, serving others. As Paul finishes off, we have one of the most touching moments in Acts and possibly even the New Testament, verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because the words he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. As we finish off this morning, this beautiful picture of Paul and the Ephesian elders, it reminds us that gospel ministry it's not a mechanical action. It's not a stoic posture. It's not an academic exercise. And it's also not just individuals upholding gospel ministry alone. You see, when gospel ministry happens together, when teaching God's word, putting Jesus first, guarding the flock, and serving others, happens in the context of believers in a church, just like with Paul and the Ephesian elders over those three years. It breeds true affections, deep emotional connections, real bonds of friendship and fellowship. We've seen it all through this farewell. Verse 21, Paul says, serving the Lord with tears. Verse 31, rebuking everyone with tears. And we see this at the end here, weeping, embracing, kissing, and sadness. You see, gospel ministry, it engages the head, teaching the word, guarding the flock. It engages the heart, tears, and affections, 
developing real bonds as we engage in the course, cause of Jesus together. And it engages our hands, putting Jesus first every day, every decision, and serving others. You see, this is a picture of gospel ministry that lasts the test of time. People will come and go, leaders will come and go, pastors will come and go, but God willing, generation after generation, the unchanging good news of life in Jesus will continue to be proclaimed. That the cross of Jesus that saves sinners from death to life, that Jesus calls us to repent and believe in him, will continue and last the test of time for God's glory. As we finish off, how can you be a part of growing a gospel ministry that lasts here at Herp Street? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege uh, each of us have here. You called us. You planted the gospel deep into our hearts as we accepted Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Our Father, help us to be a part of your gospel work here and wherever you place us in our lives and in this world. Help us to grow a culture that upholds teaching your word, putting the cause of Jesus first, guarding the gospel and serving and loving others. As we do this, grow our bonds between us that we may spur one another on as servants of Jesus, working together for the cause of your gospel and your kingdom. Our Heavenly Father, help our church to be a place where gospel ministry will continue long after our generation. We pray these things for the glory of Jesus and the building up of his kingdom. Amen.